Okay, we're going to begin with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your plan of salvation and for showing us love and kindness when we were yet enemies under your wrath and undeserving. Lord, we ask that you help us as we study where you have saved people and revealed your compassion. May we be worshipful, grateful people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read the story of Zacchaeus. This is Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and he came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Now, last week, I showed you the bookends of two stories of salvation. One on the way into Jericho, where a blind man was saved. And we saw some of the similarities between these two although they're certainly opposites in a lot of ways. The blind man is an outcast, although so was Zacchaeus. He was hated by everybody. But this person had no assets and nothing to do but beg because of his disability. But he was also resisted by the people that were around him. They were sternly telling him to be quiet, so they rebuked him for just crying out to Jesus. And as we saw last week, Jesus eventually said to him, your faith has saved you. So what we have is the story of God saving social outcasts. There's two stories, they're bookends, who were resisted by the crowd who had no reason to think that God would ever have anything to do with them and who found salvation through the Lord who is a merciful God who opens the eyes of the blind and saves lost sinners. So I believe I probably covered this slide, but we'll do it by way of review. Now, it says here he was passing through. 
I recommended to you last week Kenneth Bailey's fantastic book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. His treatment of some of the parables and some of these stories is the best I've ever read anywhere. Okay? Now, what he was able to do is to show what Middle Eastern culture was and still is like, as it was in Bailey's day, who's from the Middle East, who lived most a lot of his adult life there. A dignitary who comes into town is expected to stay with the nobility in town. Okay, it was just automatically expected. That he went on through, says something that uh, it would have really said to them, well, he's snubbing us. But what he does do, he snubs the nobility, but he heals the rejects and saves the rejects, the blind and the tax gatherer. So it shows something about God. Now here we have some things that were going against Zacchaeus. He was, well, he was a Jew. That's a good thing. But number two, he was a ruler. Number three, he was a tax collector. Number four, he was wealthy. And all of that would have been good other than the tax collector part. That made him a collaborator. And these people were hated and despised. Now, for readers of Luke, you would wonder if God would save a rich ruler. Remember the rich ruler who walked away and didn't come to Jesus? In both cases, the blind man in Zacchaeus, the crowd was an obstacle to coming to Jesus. It says in Luke 18, 25, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you're reading Luke for the first time, you've already read Luke 18, 25. So now you you see how hard it is for a rich man, and we're told that this is a rich man. So in our mind, we're thinking, well, this guy's not going to make it. He's going to be excluded. Because a camel going through an eye of the needle was not, as some have said, something difficult. It was rather something impossible. We should take it literally. That's what Bailey says. So he's traveling on the way up to Jerusalem. In the travel narrative, this began in Luke 9.51. And I mentioned this last week. When the days were approaching for his ascension... He was determined to go to Jerusalem. So from Luke 9.51, all the way to this point, Jesus is on a journey to not just to Jerusalem, but to ascend into heaven. Now here is the key as, here's where we were when I left off last week. Look at this way that Luke constructs things. And this is true throughout Luke Acts. These, uh, what Bailey calls inverted parallelism. Jesus enters... Then we have Zacchaeus introduced to us. Then we have the crowd introduced to us. Then he goes up the tree. And then Jesus unexpectedly calls him. Then he goes down the tree. Then we have the crowd. Then we have Zacchaeus. 
and then we have Jesus again. So I highlighted in red. Now, when you have these chiastic structures, the first, the middle, and the last are the positions of emphasis. So Luke is emphasizing Jesus. And we see Jesus is showing unexpected love and kindness and mercy to two different people, the blind man and now Zacchaeus, who were social outcasts. And then we'll see some details about this. Now we go to verse 3. So Zacchaeus, it says in verse 3, and I have the ESV here because I liked how it followed the Greek, verses 3 and 4, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, Bailey has an interesting reading of this. Some of you from way back when I was teaching through Luke, I recommended Bailey. I know some of you bought it. This term for small in stature could also mean having diminutive status. And the obstacle was indeed the crowd, but it could have been not just because of his height, but because they hated him and they would crowd him out. And it would have been a a bad thing for him to be in that crowd. Bailey talks about what would happen to collaborators. And he, as I said, lived a lot of his adult life in the Middle East. And that's partly how he knows all these things. He was in little villages where the customs haven't changed for thousands of years and the honor shapes and so on. It was a dangerous thing, according to Bailey, for a collaborator to be in a crowd. Now, he said what literally would and could happen was that there's a big crowd because a dignitary is coming through town, and in the crowd, people hated his collaborator. So if he was mixing in, somebody would take a knife, stab him, And the man would fall down and nobody would even see him on the ground. They would just press around him. And when they all went home, there lays the dead man. And nobody cared because it was a collaborator. So according to Bailey, if that was the case, Zacchaeus being in the crowd would have been a very threat to his life. And they were in no way going to let him have any opportunity to see Jesus, whether it was because he was short or whether it was because of a diminished status. But one way or the other, he goes up into a sycamore tree. Bailey points out that the sycamore is only mentioned here, but it is mentioned in Talmud, and that number of things are going on here. Now, this guy was a ruling tax collector, and he was rich. As we saw earlier... In the narrative of the prodigal son, it was considered shameful for a rich elder in the community to run at all because it meant pulling up the hems of your garments, running, showing your legs, and it was considered shameful and beneath the dignity of anybody but a child to go running like that. 
And it was also considered horribly undignified and shameful to climb up into a tree for similar reasons. Okay? So it was shameful to run. It was shameful to climb into a tree. Now, the tree, the sycamore tree, was not allowed in town, again, according to Bailey. The reason is that it had dense foliage, and according to Talmud and the Jewish customs, it served as a house. So if something unclean happened within the house, that is, under the sycamore tree, and a tree extended into somebody else's property, it would make them unclean too. And so the tree could only be outside of town. So it was shameful to climb a tree. And there was this shame, shame, shame in this narrative about Zacchaeus. He was an unsavory, shameful, rejected person, probably despite his wealth, in no better shape than the blind man who was rebuked on the way in to town. So he would be hid in a tree. He would be safe there. They couldn't stab him in the middle of the crowd and let him just drop dead and not nobody see him. And uh, let me just read Bailey on this. Sycamore fig trees have large leaves and low branches. One can climb into them easily and just as easily hide among their thickly clustered broad leaves. Both of these features were important to Zacchaeus. Additionally, such trees were only allowed some distance from town. Zacchaeus chose to climb a tree growing outside Jericho, assuming the crowd would have dispensed by the time Jesus reached the tree. Sycamore figs of the variety that grow in the Jordan Valley are mentioned in Mishnah and in the Babylonian Talmud. They are cultivated for their value as beams for the roofs of houses. And he went on to talk about things being dedicated to heaven and what have you and what goes on in a house. So we have an interesting thing going on here. Zacchaeus up the tree. This isn't just a little Sunday school story. You know, they have the wee little man song. (laughs) Sometimes these things are something that we can really learn from and we ought to five and six when jesus came to the place now he didn't stop in jericho so the crowd is still there to see him on the outskirts he looked up and said to him zacchaeus hurry and come down for i must stay at your house and he hurried and came down and received him gladly now one or two things are going on here either this is a miracle of Jesus's knowledge that he knows this is Zacchaeus. But Bailey has a different idea, and he's seen this happen in the Middle East, and he believes that he'd been that Zacchaeus, who was hated, had been seen in a tree and was undergoing mockery and ridicule from the crowd, and they were yelling at him, and Jesus knew his name because he heard the crowd yelling at Zacchaeus. I don't want to spend too much time looking for Bailey, but he says they could have been something. Oh, we got the polecat up in the tree. Let's, he, he's, he's vulnerable. Let's get after him. And so that may have happened. 
but otherwise it's a, a miracle that he knew his name. And so, according to Bailey, the crowd likely saw him up there and was mocking him because he's shameful. What's this rich ruler, this collaborator, this tax gatherer whom we hate? He's up in a tree. What a scoundrel. And how shameful. And so they could very well have been mocking him, and that's how Jesus knew his name because in the blind man, Bartimaeus on the way into town, they were sternly rebuking him. That's just one possible reading. Either way, Jesus knows his name. And then he says, I must stay at your house. Now, you've heard Eric and I both talk about this word for must. I have it on the PowerPoint day. And Luke uses this to mean divine necessity. The last verse we studied in Acts, and I'll be, by the way, when I'm teaching Sunday school again, I'll be back in Acts 4, and we'll finish that. But uh, in Acts 4.12, it says there's only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that's Jesus. And it's God's divine necessity that we be saved through the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus said he must go somewhere, and you can find this throughout Luke Acts, it's because of God's purpose. It's God's purpose that Jesus would go to the house of this hated man and show, therefore, his great love and compassion and his willingness to cross boundaries set up by the people around and go and seek and save that which is lost. Though he had money, this tax gatherer was just as much an outcast as the blind man begging by the side of the road. Brian. And would the divine necessity be Zacchaeus's salvation? Well, God's purpose was that this would happen. Right. So then could we say in our lives that whatever happened and brought us to our salvation, those things that happened and who we met and what we did was also divine necessity? Amen. It's God's providence bringing us to the right place at the right time. It happened to me. I happened to be sitting in an organic chemistry class and was shown evidence for creation rather than evolution, whether intended by the professor, I do not know. And uh, Diane and her family happened to have been saved just before that. And these things all happened. But God will move heaven and earth to bring a sinner to repentance. Oh, yes. And though we know that God's purpose will happen, look at the fact that God came to seek and save that which is lost. That's our theme. We haven't got to that yet. You know, some may say, why do you keep preaching on salvation? Why do you keep talking about the gospel? Why is it always the same thing? Well, Eric and I were talking as we were recording radio on uh, Tuesday we're just going verse by verse by verse by verse. Eric's in Mark. I'm in Colossians. This is all in the text. 
No, I'm going through Acts. Well, I admit that I purposely came back to these stories of salvation, but it shows that these are reviews and previews for what happened in Acts. There's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. The Bible emphasizes salvation. Oh, yes. The text says what it says. And you know, it's really sad that this is neglected. Topical preaching has pushed the gospel out of churches. Jesus calls him by name and calls him to himself. You might think it's kind of rude to invite yourself to somebody's house. Not in the Middle East. If a dignitary came through town and came to your house, you were the most honored person in that whole city. Yes. And he, in a sense, rejected Jericho by going right through and not stopping at anybody, with anybody. He's outside of town now. Now, he's going to visit the most hated and despicable person they could think of and go to his house. Plus, according to Talmud, tax gatherers and their whole family were unclean. They were perpetually unclean. They couldn't be anything but unclean. As long as they were collaborators with the Romans, they shared the uncleanliness of the Gentiles. And if they have a house and you go into their house, you become unclean. Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem where they're going to celebrate the Passover. And he's going to go there in the eyes of the people around as unclean. And that creates a problem. Here's what I think. The Holy One of Israel doesn't become unclean. He makes the people who come to him clean. Even if they were filthy before, spiritually. Remember Jesus washing the disciples' feet? He makes them clean in more than one way. Jesus was willing to be considered unclean by the people who'd been mocking Zacchaeus. Verse 7, when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. It's amazing how often Jesus did that. Because he was disregarding everything they considered important. Zacchaeus was unclean and everything that came under his roof was unclean, period. What's this grumbling? Well, we see it in the context in Luke and we see it in the Old Testament. Boy, the ability to use logos to find words that are used in the New Testament Greek that are also used in the Septuagint, is a powerful tool. And this is the same word for grumbling that's found in the Exodus when they grumbled about Moses. And it's used several times in the New Testament, including in Luke and in John, for people grumbling about God's work of salvation and how he did it. 
in Luke 15, 1 and 2, which he introduces, by the way, several stories, including the prodigal son, where we talk about people who don't deserve it finding salvation. It says in Luke 15, 1 and 2, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, verse 2, began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. (laughs) Who you ate with? This goes back to Luke 7 with the immoral woman who came to the house of Simon when Jesus was dining there. Who you ate with spoke volumes. To eat with a sinner told them that this guy is no prophet from God. Read Luke chapter 7. Their grumbling used the same Greek word as used in the Old Testament for the wilderness wanderers. And the implication in Luke is that they're not just grumbling at Jesus, they're grumbling at God's ways. Old Testament and New. They're grumbling at Jesus just like they grumbled at Moses. Is this how God's going to save us? To take us out of Egypt and leave us out here to die in the wilderness? And feed us this manna? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Grumbling in the Bible is an unbelieving response to God's plan of salvation. Rich? It just seems to me that there's a pattern here that Jesus Christ goes out of his way to be offensive in every which way possible to the natural human proclivities. Correct? Yeah, God's way of salvation offends religious people. But I'm talking macro and micro here. I'm talking about the whole thing going to the fig tree, well, going the, to the yeah, tax the, well, the, house, going it's to, all, Yeah, it's a preview of the cross. It offends so, everybody. So the, and the micro is salvation itself, and salvation is offensive to, you know, to human beings in general because, hey, I want a hand in my salvation. Jesus Christ says, you have no hand in your salvation. That's offensive. So it's offensive through everything, layer upon layer upon layer. Yeah. It's all offensive. Amen. God's so it, plan of salvation offends pe- religious people and everybody else. And that's on purpose. It's on purpose. A natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit well, of God. Well, you know, when they were earlier upset about something, Jesus prayed. This is in Matthew 11 and said, I thank thee, Father, that you hid these things from the wise and prudent, hid, and revealed them to babes. For such was well-pleasing in your eyes. And dear brothers and sisters, if we're willing to look at this, and if we're willing to understand it, and if we're willing to praise God for his way of saving sinners, we can be thankful that God revealed this to babes. Because the wise and prudent didn't get it. So the ultimate is for a a sinner such as myself to say, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, though, King of Saints. Amen. You're right, Rich. Luke 5.30, I think, do I mention that? Yes. Luke 5.30. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? 
Same word in the Greek or a cognate thereof. They grumbled. Luke 15, I already read to you. They grumbled. Exodus 16, 2 and 3, they grumbled. The sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Same word in the Septuagint as we find in the New Testament Greek. John 6, 41. I have that here. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. You see, the Jews in John 6 were practicing revisionist history. You know what that is? When you purposely change history because you want people to believe something that's not really true. The Jews in John 6 were saying, Moses gave us manna. Remember, they wanted to make Jesus king so they could have free bread when he multiplied the bread. And they got the idea. Moses gave us manna. Jesus should at least give us ordinary bread. And so when Jesus told them what kind of bread he came to give them, his life for the life of the world, his body for the life of the world, they grumbled. In their mind, they're not thinking, oh, our ancestors received manna and they grumbled and didn't like it. They're thinking, no, our, man, our ancestors received manna and that was good. Now Jesus should do something like that. And when he offers them bread, they grumble, thus making themselves like their ancestors, sons of the grumblers. Sons of grumbling, that's a new term. <laughs> Grumble, grumble, grumble. Why are you always preaching about Jesus? Why are you always preaching about salvation? Why are you always preaching the gospel? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Tickle our ears. We need Robert Schuller. Gospel of self-esteem. Well, you, do you get the idea? Now, I, what I'm saying, and I'm making a claim here, is that Luke purposely used the same word that was used in Exodus so that his readers would make the connection. I'm not just a clever preacher who makes a connection. The Bible makes the connection. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I chose the ESV because there is a present tense in the Greek. And there's a discussion about how significant that is. Is that what he always did? Is that what he's saying he does starting right now? Whatever the case, we see an allusion back to Luke 3 and verse 8. Luke 3 and verse 8 in our reading of Luke Acts. Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. Luke 3, 12 and 13. And some tax collectors, that's Zacchaeus, later in Luke, also came to be baptized. 
And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. So what we have here, if you're an astute reader of Luke Acts, is a requirement of repentance explained in Luke 3 for tax collectors and Zacchaeus doing that and more to show the readers that this is genuine repentance. Luke's point is that this is genuine repentance. And you have a contrast with the rich ruler who walked away when he heard God's terms. This Zacchaeus volunteered what he said here because he was a repentant sinner. Jen. I have a great niece who is pretty deep, deeply embedded in the social gospel, and I can see where if a person didn't understand your teaching, they would look at this and say, well, see, there you go. That's how we're saved. You know, we give to the poor. We help the needy. And No, that's not how he was saved. That's what happened because he was saved. Right, but I'm seeing a person, you know. Oh, I know. My... I grew up in a social gospel church. Yeah. But they weren't even so much, although they would probably applaud that, you know, you should do good to, to people around you. They wanted you to vote for liberal socialists. Okay, you're guilty, guilty, guilty. But if you vote for the people we like and they tax you, then you could feel better. That's their version of social salvation. But you're not saved based on who you vote for. You're saved by repenting. And I'll tell you this also. Christians have always been generous people. Hospitals have been built. Missions have been started. Goods have been collected and given away. This is things that we've done and do. And you'll never be able to stop Christians from being generous because God has done a work of grace. But you, if you give everything away, what does it say in 1 Corinthians 13? You can give everything away. If you don't have love, you have nothing. Agape, yes. You know, Bob, I was just as thinking about Jen's comment about the social gospel, and it's a very Marxist uh, agenda within the social gospel. And one of the things they often critique is you can't be a soldier because they want to bring peace by their own efforts. Well, what's interesting is in that Luke 3.14, if it's still in front of you, notice the soldiers come and ask, what should we do? And notice what John doesn't say. He says to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation to be content with your wages. He doesn't say to them, well, you guys can't be soldiers anymore. You know what? I had a teacher at seminary who thought it was a sin to be a soldier. Right. And this one, if it had been, I think it would be incumbent. That's a good reading. Yeah, well, do I get coffee? <laughs> There's your coffee. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Delivered right. But uh, it's an important verse, I think, for all of us to remember, um, especially in light of the attacks on our soldiers and, you know, by the left in America that, you know what, um, Genesis 9, 6, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. Romans 13, 4, Paul says the government does not bear the sword in vain, meaning they're ordained to use it. And what's happened in our culture is because of Marxism, the role of government instead of restraining evil, is now to redistribute wealth. It's flipped on its head. And this is a passage I think we can use in the culture of the day. Without days. true repentance, because Amen. repentance is coming to faith in Jesus. That's right. Zacchaeus came to faith earlier in Luke 7 when the 
sinner woman came and wept on Jesus' feet and anointed his feet with perfume, he said later to them, to her, your faith has saved you. She had saving faith in Christ. 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek, I have that in purple, and to save that which was lost. This fits with what we've read earlier in Luke. Remember earlier, Jesus said that the rocks, God can raise up from rocks or stones, sons of Abraham. If you're going to be a son of Abraham, show the fruits of repentance. So it isn't just saying he was Jewish. It's saying he was characterized by the faith that characterized Abraham, who believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. He had the faith of Abraham. Therefore, he did the deeds of Abraham. Today is used in the Bible for the day of salvation. What does that mean? Well, salvation has various ranges of meaning. It has a range of meaning, I should say, throughout the Bible. And you could think about the future salvation of Israel, which is true. Remember the disciples say, is it not, ask, excuse me, the disciples ask, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So there's this future salvation, this global for the people of faith and for ultimately national Israel. But when it talks about the today salvation has come, it's talking about to the person who has faith. There are occasionally theologians who come along trying to deny personal repentance and faith for salvation who say that salvation is not an individual thing, but it's a group thing. Groups are saved. Well, then you have Emergent who says that personal salvation is a consumer good sold to unsuspecting suspecting religious consumers. So they seem to know that we have bad motives and that we offer salvation so we can take people's money, that we keep people coming to our services because we offer this consumer good. Why do they say that? Well, it turns out that Rob Bell and Brian McLaren and Tony Jones and these guys don't believe that there's any wrath of God against sin to be saved from. They don't believe there's a literal hell. They believe ultimately that everybody is saved. So personal salvation is a myth. What you need to do, according to Emergent, is just cooperate with the processes going on in history leading to paradise, the Hegelian synthesis or Marxism. That's their salvation. So we do not apologize one bit for teaching personal salvation. I know that there's times in the past where evangelicals have been mocked for saying you need Jesus as your personal savior. 
And I know emergents mock that. And they say, well, what? this is just all self-centered or whatever. You get some consumer good. Let me tell you why that was stated in back in the 50s and 60s. Because the liberal social gospel rejected any kind of salvation other than Mar- the Marxist version of it, the social gospel. And so the individual just kind of went along with whatever the preachers or the religious leaders were saying and didn't see their own sins as an issue. So evangelicals talked about personal salvation, not to be self-centered, but to distinguish that from the liberal social gospel. Now, we don't have to say personal savior. We can say that you need to repent and believe the gospel, which is what we do. That's something a person does. When Jesus comes to seek and save the lost, it's persons he comes to save. In Acts, when the church was born, it was 5,000 persons who were added to the church. And so that's not a bad thing, so don't apologize for the fact that persons are saved, even though the emergence mocked that idea. You get with the group. They say, look around, see what God's doing, and join it. Well, how do you know what God's doing? Well, it looks sort of like our social gospel, whatever that might be. And so you join some cause. We say that we need to believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. Today, it says in Hebrews 4, 7, I don't know what I have up there, but I'll tell you what's in my notes. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's an external call and an internal call. Here's how this applies. Today, if the Holy Spirit's convicting you that you've sinned against the Holy God and that you've just gone your own way and not believed upon Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the eternal God who came into history and who was crucified and raised on the third day and who appeared to many witnesses and bodily ascended to heaven. As you hear that, if today you hear his voice, meaning you're convicted, you know that's true, don't harden your heart. Don't run away, but believe on the Lord Jesus. I just had to share this because uh, Joey and I were in Northfield yesterday, and there was a small group of people from a Baptist church that were doing some street evangelism. Okay. And so we were walking up the street, and you could hear this man kind of hollering loudly, you know, and um, as we got closer, we, you know, could figure out, obviously, what he was doing. But it was just interesting, because when you talk about this internal call and the external call, but um, the few people that were walking, it was almost like a magnet. The people would not come on the same city sidewalk he was on. And... (laughs) um, and actually, you know, people were just, you know, the people that were walking by were telling him to shut up, you know, oh, get out of here, quit it. And, you know, somebody threw a snowball at him. And it was just, I mean, it was, wasn't it, it was just quite, you know, and it wasn't a huge group of people, but it was just really something to see these people just, um, you know, yeah, shunning. That's, 
If you get a chance, ask Diane about the story about how her brother was saved. It was actually like that, and his buddies were doing what you said, and he got he got saved. Right? He said, "Why are you treating this preacher so badly?" He came and became saved. My brother was saved like that. Diane and I went out on the streets of Sheldon, Iowa, when we had a coffee house with gospel tracks, and my brother Wayne was sitting there on the steps with a bunch of other loiterers, <laughs> teenagers. And his buddy started mocking us and singing Rock of Ages and hooting at us like we're some stupid idiots. And Wayne looked at them and he looked at us and he looked at them and he looked at us. He got up, he followed us down there and came to Christ. Some people hear the internal call. Others will mock and spit and cast horrible things in the face of the preacher. Son of Abraham means qualities of Abraham. Today is often linked to salvation. Remember, he said to the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise, signifying the day of salvation. Notice it says the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. One time I heard an audio by John MacArthur where he was being interviewed about the seeker movement. And he was referencing Romans 3 where it says, none seek after God. So he says these churches that are seeker sensitive are reaching out to nobody. (laughs) None seek after God. And then he referenced, I believe, the woman at the well in John where God seeks such people to worship him. He said that in the Bible, the seeker is God. Isn't that interesting? God, now the Son of Man here, it means Messiah, has come to seek. Jesus is seeking to save the lost. We weren't seeking. And I was a mocker. Oh, yes. I was mocking God less than 24 hours before I was saved. God had every reason to turn me into a pile of ashes and send me to hell. But instead, he saved me. Rich. Isn't that a bit ironic that the seeker-friendly churches are going after those who don't exist, but yet their numbers are huge? Well, it's because they're not giving them the true gospel. I believe if, if, if somebody like John MacArthur preached at a big church, and I'm dating myself, like the Crystal Cathedral, which I don't even know if it made it, but... There would be people saved. God has his elect everywhere, and we don't know who they are. But if you don't preach the gospel to them, they'll just sit there thinking that Christianity is a self-help religion, give you a better ride through life. It says in John 4, 23, that an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. My dear friends, will you worship him? Peter. Bob, a question. If we believe in uh, election and predestination, why do we continue to preach the word if 
God knows whose names are in the book. Because, because God uses means. And God has chosen to use the foolishness of the message, message preached to save those who will believe. Go back to the story about my brother Wayne. So Diane and I go out there with these gospel tracts, and there's a bunch of loitering teenagers sitting on the steps in the four corners of the Main Street watching to see what kind of cars drive by and who has whom for a girlfriend or a boyfriend. That's, can you relate to that? Oh, yeah, look at that car. Oh, he's got a nice girlfriend. No wonder I don't have a girlfriend. Mike, I don't have a car. Teenagers. So here they all are. And my brother Gary told my dad that if he didn't get a two-door car, I'll never have a girlfriend. (laughs) Anyhow, we have no idea that there's anybody there that would respond to the gospel, do we? But we do know that if somebody will respond, it's going to be through the gospel. And how will they hear unless there's a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Romans 10, God uses means. So Diane and I went by with our little tracks, and Wayne followed us down, was saved. That was a Friday night, I think. The next Thursday night, he was baptized in a little gospel church. And Wayne is still serving God. So the doctrine of election is something we find out after we're saved to comfort us that God's going to keep us and that Satan is not going to get us. But before the fact, we don't know who is going to respond. I I decided to make a slide out of this. I made the executive decision last night. This one's not on your, your printout. But I thought the passage in Ezekiel that I had just as a cross reference was so good it deserved its own slide. Not that every verse doesn't. I love Ezekiel 34 because it shows God as the shepherd who has under shepherds. And in the context, the under shepherds are looking at the sheep as simply a way for them to enrich themselves. So let me read verse 11 and 12 that we have on our slide here. For thus saith the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Now, let me stop right there. Let's be good readers. Let's be astute. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. The Old Testament says, God seeks to save the sheep. This is a verse about the deity of Christ. Jesus is doing what God does. Heals the blind, heals the lame, seeks to save the lost. Wow. I remember a day when I was a new Christian when preachers preached on this. I remember a day when Jesus Christ was preached in the pulpit. I remember a day when we were so thankful to be part of the family of God and we never thought that that meant we were going to get rich. And we never thought that, well, that means I won't have any problems. We just knew that we're saved. If you ask somebody how, how things are going, a good answer, my sins are forgiven. It's going pretty good. 
<laughs> so I have a question um, on the Ezekiel verses. How, do, how can we tell when God is speaking directly to Israel and about Israel versus when something like that appears and then does it apply to us in well, it's New all, Testament Well, it's times? all of the above, okay? God's plan to save Israel still exists. Mm-hmm. And this is a promise for future Messianic salvation to come to national Israel. But we have already in the Old Testament plenty of indications that God's going to save Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 49, 6, for example. So there's an already not yet. And you can see that in the Gospels. And, And would there be passages then in the Old Testament that just apply to Israel and not... How, how do we discern between when something should be applied to us and when it shouldn't? Well, if it's talking about messianic salvation, it always applies to us and to Israel. When it talks just about something that has only to do with the nation, like owning or having land that's holy land, that, of course, is only Israel. You can't go buy land that's holy. Is that right? In other words, you can't buy land and say, well, the angel Moroni told me this was the spot. Yeah, yeah, these preachers, oh, I got a holy spot. You got to give me money to build a building on it. No, there's holy people who are that way because of the blood of Jesus. Well, let me give you the context. We got about a minute here, verses two through four. You can look this up if you want in your Bible. He was talking about the shepherds. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus saith the Lord God, woe shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened the disease you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and severity you have dominated them. It's hard to not see that applying in the New Testament. Elders are not to lord it over the flock. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And because the shepherds of Israel failed God said, I myself will seek out the sheep, search for the sheep as a shepherd cares for the herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and deliver them from all the places to which they are scattered on a cloudy, gloomy day. My friends, when Jesus came and said, I came to seek and save the lost, he was fulfilling prophecy. God still seeks to save the lost. And it's our privilege to join with him. What do we do? We preach the gospel. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these glorious things that we're allowed to look into. And maybe we be about your business of preaching the gospel so that the lost could be found. 
that you would gather together a church who are worshipers in spirit and in truth, that you might be glorified and honored, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Next week, or two weeks from now, we will get... Thank you. We'll get back into Acts.